Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week, we saw the White House propose the third massive spending plan of the Biden administration. The latest plan is called the American Families Plan, and it will cost $1.8 trillion. The plan will expand access to education with free universal preschool and two years of tuition-free community college, among other initiatives. This would all be paid for by raising taxes on investors and wealthy Americans and more enforcement from the IRS. For more on what's in this plan, we'll speak to Jeff Stein, White House economics reporter at The Washington Post. This is the third policy, you know, major economic proposal from the White House since Biden took office. The first $1.9 trillion economic relief package was passed in March. And since then, the White House has unveiled two separate but related efforts that they say collectively add up to his Build Back Better agenda. Those $4 trillion stretched over two plans, the first of which is centered on infrastructure, manufacturing and jobs. And the second released yesterday, or I guess rather today, is centered on child care, education, paid family and medical leave, and other programs that the White House says are more directly geared toward improving the economic fortunes of middle-class families. The distinction between the two plans kind of blurs a little bit, and it's a little unclear how they'll pass or if they'll pass, but those are the two main buckets we're looking at. Yeah, that's the big thing. Uh, you know, we already are seeing a little bit of opposition or pushback from Republicans on this, and they're, they're huge spending bills, and uh, they, you know they don't really want to go that way. But this has kind of been so far the tactic from the administration. I'm going to put out a plan that has everything as possible that we can possibly try to get, and then we'll we'll work it back and everything. My understanding is that they might not be able to really get to this plan for some months, though, to be able to start hashing it out. It's definitely one of those things where um, everyone in Washington is asking everyone else what they think will happen with these two plans. And I think the answer is that really nobody, including the White House, including Pelosi, including Schumer, is not a question that there's no answer to, unfortunately. There's a ton of stuff in both of these plans that a lot of people have been clamoring for that really have widespread consensus, at least on the Democratic side, and poll quite well provisions such as, you know, as I mentioned, paid family and medical leave. America is one of the uh, countries in the world with the highest levels of child poverty. The White House temporarily approved an expansion of the child tax credit in March. That's going to expire. Um, and so child poverty would spike if that's not extended. So there are all these things that a lot of people, um, you know, at least among the Democrats, are very adamant need, need to get done. But the sequencing and the timing is really unclear, especially because the tax provisions, both in the manufacturing plan and in this family's plan, are very contentious. The taxes on the manufacturing plan would be, you know, primarily centered on corporations and businesses. The taxes in the family's plan are centered on investors and rich Americans. But really, those are both very controversial. It's very easy to spend relative to you know taking money away from some constituency, especially right. one um, as influential as rich people when it comes to Congress. Let's talk a little bit about some of the details of the plan. I mentioned education is a huge part of that. They want to do a free pre-K for ages three and four. They also want to give people two years free of community college. So right now, the nation's guarantee of a free education is at 13 years. They want to bump that up to 17 years of free education. How, how, how is that going to work? Another good question that, unfortunately, I don't have superb answers to. The White House identifies certain levels of funding that they want to include 
to achieve those goals. I think it's about $250 billion or so for universal pre-K for all three and four-year-olds in the country and about $100, $150 billion over 10 years for free community college, two years of free community college. But the mechanisms for that are very unclear, and it actually became apparent in the release of the plan last night to reporters and then to the public this morning that they're really counting on a lot of state aid and state money being used to reach that goal. So the White House is saying that the money that they're providing will amount to that goal. But we've already seen these kinds of approaches from Democrats not really work out in the past. You may recall, some listeners may recall that under Obama, there was a lot of hope that the Medicaid expansions that they approved as part of the Affordable Care Act would induce states to um, you know, expand Medicaid and cover the poorest uh, um, people um, in those states with health insurance, but that the states would kick in some amount. That didn't happen. And a lot of people, a lot of poor people in states controlled by Republicans never saw that expansion. And so there's a lot of concern among some of the advocates for these policies that while the White House is trumpeting these measures as fulfilling these broadly held social goals, that they're not actually willing to do the requisite spending to achieve them. You know, it's already getting kind of panned on both sides, really on the Democratic side, on some areas for not going too far, obviously on the Republican side for raising taxes too much and, and the increase in the role that government would play in American society. One of those things that I guess uh, being criticized for maybe not going too far, the those t- child tax credits that were kind of implemented so far, I think they want to try to extend it to 2025 with this new plan. But, you know, they're trying to keep the cost down of the overall bill. So they said, oh, let's keep it to 2025, not extend it indefinitely. You know, so there's like a lot of uh, wiggle room and, and uh, jockeying with all of this. It's such a strange dynamic you put your finger on because, while, well, as you correctly say, the White House plan only extends the tax credit through 25. The White House and Biden themselves keep saying that they want to make it permanent and it's basically an admission that they're trying to play games with the number, that they envision this policy being permanently enacted, but they do not want to be tied to the implication that because this program will be expensive in the back half of the decade, it, it gets actually much more expensive to ex- extend after 2025, because that is the year at which the Republican increase in the child tax credit from 2017, from their 2017 tax law, that will end. So to extend it beyond 25 would require them not only to pay for the extension from the stimulus plan passed in March, but also the expansion from the uh, 2017 Republican Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So they're trying to avoid being saddled with a sticker shock, but at the same time, acknowledging that their intention is to spend the same amount of money. It's, it's an awkward dance they're yeah. trying to pull off. So we have the infrastructure plan. We have the American Families Plan now. They're both going to be really tough to get through. What would a, a win look like for the Biden administration with these two bills? Because as, as I mentioned, you know, they put a lot in it. They know they're going to have to negotiate a lot of things and it won't be the same at the end. But what would a win look like for them? From the people I talked to in, in the White House, there's some debate about whether they're acting on this appropriately. But I, I think there's a broad recognition that under the Obama years, Democrats didn't really do enough to prove to everyday Americans that the federal government was capable of delivering concrete material benefits that would improve their economic well-being and, and standing. And I think, you know, there's a lot of different provisions, but the White House is hoping that these two packages combined, that enough of them gets through that the economy is is changed. I know it sounds maybe amorphous, but it's changed in a way that, that people notice in their daily lives. They have these plans to you know build electric vehicle charging stations, 
throughout the country to weatherize millions and millions of homes to dramatically uh, reduce the amount that families face in their child care bills, um, what they pay to have um, their parents and grandparents watched through the elder care system that's so broken in this country. And I don't know what the precise metric for success for them looks like, but I think they're really aiming to have an impact so that people really notice sort of the economy get better and not, you know, they, they're, they're very careful about this and sort of understated, but the way they frame it is build back better. That's in Biden's slogan. And it's, it's a, a call to say, you know, let's not just go back to where we were before COVID, make sort of these structural adjustments to the American economy that go beyond, you know, immediate uh, emergency relief. Jeff Stein, White House economics reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. After a roller coaster year of remote learning and school closures due to the pandemic, many parents may be feeling powerless as they face the possibility of their children being held back. This particular situation deals with third graders across the country who are not reading at the appropriate grade level. 18 states have laws on the books where students must be held back if they don't meet the requirements, and many students have fallen behind. In Tennessee alone, some estimate that nearly 66% of third graders don't meet English language standards. For more on how the pandemic continues to impact education, we'll speak to Carly Citrin, education reporter at Politico. These third grade reading laws were kind of a, a fad policy a couple years ago, starting in like 1998 and in the early 2000s with Jeb Bush down in Florida, who was then governor. And the idea is that at, in the third grade, kids are no longer kind of learning to read, but they're reading to learn, which means reading then becomes a part of all of their studies moving forward. You're thinking word problems in math, all sorts of reading scientific papers, science class, things like that. And so all these kind of states, more so, you know, over the last couple of years, started enacting these policies that say, look, if you can't read at a third grade level in third grade, we're going to hold you back until you can to make sure that you have what you need to move forward and be successful. And the reasons a lot of these policies were passed were kind of twofold. One, it was to help improve national scores, national test scores, and, and boost state rankings that they could access additional federal funding and all sorts of other stuff. But it was also as kind of a way to hold schools accountable to pay attention to literacy and the importance that it plays in students' lives. And so the folks who passed these bills were kind of trying to say, like, we really need to focus on this really crucial part in kids' lives. And so over the years, these policies have been enacted and and pushed through, in some cases, without a lot of teacher or parent involvement, driven kind of at the lawmaker governmental policy level, not so much with, with teachers and educators. But now what we're seeing is, you know, it was fine to have all these laws in place and policies in place before, but now that kids have, you know, run into these learning loss or unfinished learning situations this year, these policies could kick in and and really target an outsized number of kids that was kind of unthinkable many years ago. So that's what folks are a little afraid of this year. Yeah, as you mentioned in your article, a lot of these decisions aren't made by parents and teachers or their children, but by state officials because these laws have been passed. So let's get into some of the bad news, though, as you're alluding to right now. So in Tennessee... They say that nearly 66% of third graders are not meeting English language standards. So they could be flagged for this type of retention uh, under these new laws. In Michigan, 
one of the 18 states who also has a, a decline in literacy programs. Pre-pandemic, there was about 5,000 third graders, they said, could be identified for retention. They say because of the pandemic, that number could have quadrupled. So it is a serious concern for a lot of parents and students. What's also really complicated and what we're seeing kind of at a national level is these patchwork of policies. So, so different states address it differently. In, in Michigan, there is funding and money for literacy coaches and for grade monitoring and to take efforts to help the kids so that, yeah, you may be flagged for attention, but, you know, there are good cause exemptions. There are things you can do to get up to speed. In other states, there isn't even a mandatory notification to parents. So in some states, the schools don't even have to tell parents if their kid has been targeted for retention. It's such a varied picture across the country. And, in, you know, in some places, there's funding for wraparound services and for all sorts of other things and summer school programs. And in other states, the money just isn't there. And there's a real fear that you could be in one of the states where you might not even know that this policy was passed. In right. Tennessee, it went through in a rushed session in, in three days without even a chance for teachers or parents to kind of testify on the bill to lawmakers. So from what the one uh, Democratic House member told me was like, you know, by the time she could reach out and get in touch with teachers and parents and tell them this policy was being considered, it was already done. So how is this going to play out? Because a lot of this is tied to standardized testing. So in general, and just my experience, right, going to school, you know, if the kid is failing his subjects in his classes, pretty likely you're going to have to be held back or try to make up some of those things. But this is tied to standardized testing. So they have to wait till the next school year and take those tests and then they'll decide if they have to go back. And then do parents have any recourse? I noticed in your article, they can request good cause exemptions possibly to keep moving their, their students forward. But, you know, is that the only mechanism they have for remedying this? So the Biden administration this year has been really kind of flexible with these waivers. Some states have received standardized testing waivers that say you don't have to test this year. Others have not received the waivers or their waivers have been rejected in part, which means some states are moving ahead with their tests. So it really all depends on what the federal government has said to each state's education department and whether or not these tests will be taken. But a lot of states are moving forward with standardized testing this year. And if so, then third graders are going to be subject to the tests. And if their governments have not made a decision or if their education departments have not made a decision about the retention portion, then it's going to go forward as planned. And that could mean that, you know, a year without preparation for standardized tests, even a, a test that some advocates say doesn't even properly measure reading attainment could be used as the basis for a lot of these retention decisions. In terms of, yeah, these good cause exemptions, I do want to be clear that in most states, there is a way. So it's not automatic, you know, case closed, you're held back. Like there are in many states ways to either boost grades, attend summer school, show you're making some kind of effort to achieve and work with districts and school leaders to kind of say, hey, I, I don't want this. I want to fight for my kid to move forward. This isn't the best thing for them and kind of fight your way out or, or chase down these good cause exemptions. But in many cases, these take a lot of time and effort and showing up to meetings after meetings. And for a lot of working parents, it's not necessarily part of the plan. Proponents of these retention policies, they say it's not about holding kids back. It's about improving literacy. But on the flip side of that, when kids do get held back, there's a lot of self-esteem issues that go along with it. There's stigma attached to it. 
you know, or the kids being labeled dumb or slow or think, you know, whatever the case may be, there's a lot that's attached to it by being held back. And, you know, that could affect them in many ways down the line as well. I think in speaking with the parents, even the parents who made the decision to hold their kids back, what they really wanted to emphasize with me is that this should be a family decision and this should be a parental decision made in concert with school leaders and and teachers and the student, you know, him or herself or themselves to kind of have the data and the research at hand and say, we know what could happen, but we are making this decision because it is what's right for us at this time. You know, it could be because of mental health issues this year, or or even in some cases, I've heard families saying, my child missed out on a year of sports that could have been really important for gaining scholarships or, or gaining sports opportunities in college in the future. And so what folks have told me is this shouldn't be a governmental decision. This shouldn't be a decision made at the top level because a governor or a lawmaker wants to improve scores. This should be a decision based on the individual student because they're the ones that have to go through this and confront the stigma and some of the negative consequences attached. You know, as I mentioned at the beginning, I've just been very interested in how all this has played out. I, I saw it firsthand with my sister and dealing with her three kids. All three of them had to mm-hmm. do the remote learning. And I was just checking up on her constantly. How are you guys doing? How are the kids doing? Just to see what their progress was. And luckily, they were okay. I mean, they were doing fine. I'm sure there is some deficit that they miss from being in person, being taught in person. But luckily, they would do their lessons and all that. But still, I feel like they were missing a lot of stuff. And, and you know, so I talked to my sister about that. I was just very interested in that. And, and one of the parents you profiled in your article, Sonia Thomas, you know, she turned some of her experience into action with this. She went through this emotional, complex kind of decision to hold her son back, but she made it in concert with him, too. He also agreed that they had to do it. But so she started an organization that would help other parents to deal with this type of thing as well. It's such a thought and such a tricky, complex and emotional issue. And it's so individual that what Sonia Thomas's point was to me was that parents should at least have all the information and data and policy in front of them so that they can help make these decisions, right? Like, this is such a a really impactful and really heady, difficult decision. And it's not one that should be taken lightly. And it's not one that should be taken just looking at a couple studies and saying, oh, this is going to have negative impacts on my kid. Forget it. We are against it. And that, you know, you really have to talk to your kid and take in their interest into account. And she said in her case, her son was like, I don't feel ready. I don't feel that I'm reading on the same level as my peers. I'm not ready to go into a high school, a new high school during a pandemic with new virtual learning and I'm not going to know anyone. And so they made the decision to, to keep him back. And she said it's a decision she does not regret by any means. But, you know, that being said, she said she respects everyone's ability to make the decision that's right for them and that it shouldn't be up to the state to dictate whether or not a child needs to be held back and that it should be something that's coming from the ground up. Carly Citrin, education reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.